0: Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, open up your Bibles to John chapter 13, and we're going to look uh, at the second half of John 13, and then we're going to look at uh, about the first half of uh, John 14. So we're going to kind of split chapters, uh, two chapters in half to form one teaching tonight. Um, how many of you know, or have you, did you just notice that Jesus has made some difficult statement to us in the Gospels? You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, he makes some of the roughest statements for us to live by. I mean, how many enjoy that statement, love your enemies? Anybody enjoy that one right there? That's one of the toughest ones, right? And then he says, and then he adds to that one, you know, uh, pray for those who persecute you. You know, I'd rather pray for them a certain way when they persecute me. But um, so then he adds things like that that, you know, and then and and then he moves on and he tells me something, something like I'm supposed to, to love other people. I'm supposed to love everybody. Right. And then he adds a tagline to loving everybody that I'm supposed to love everybody the way Jesus loved me. And then, of course, don't you ever feel like you have a rebuttal to that one right there? But God, you don't know what they did to me, and you don't know what they said about me, and you don't know how this see what happened here, and you don't know any of these things. So God, why would you ask me to do anything like that? And so the Bible's filled with these really, really tough statements, especially about love and how we're supposed to love other people. So we're gonna look at these some of the at this love stuff tonight a lot in a lot of ways, but then we're gonna shift gears as we move to chapter 14, and we're gonna look about at um at uh, how to overcome worry. Any of you walk around a lot of stress and worry in life? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, two hands back there. Okay, end a toe. I saw that. No, I'm joking. Now, what we pick up in the story, uh, uh, the narrative, is that Jesus has just left the Last Supper. Correct? So think about that. Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas has left the Last Supper. Now, where did he go? Well, the only people that really know where Judas has gone would be Jesus and probably John, who leans back on Jesus' bosom and asks him, you know, you know, who's the one who's going to betray you? Now, so with that said, in that context, here we go. If you have your notes, taking your first note here, and that is number one. Jesus makes love a command. So Jesus makes love a command. In John chapter 13, verse 31 through 34, it says this. It says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the, to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, Jesus makes love a command. Now, let's, let's, let's back up on this and think about this. Question, do they need another command? Do they need a new command? No, they didn't need anything new like that. If you think about it, in their minds, no. Do you know how many commands they had? A Jew, you know how many commands they live by? And don't say Ten. It was 613 commands. That's what they live by. And so when you think of the scriptures, they start with these 613 commands. And as it moves on, if I remember correctly, I think in Psalms, David takes it down to 11. 11. I think Micah takes it down to three. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. There's three right there. And then as you move to Jesus, he breaks it down to two. Love God and love others. He breaks it down to two. Of course, Paul is going to break it down even further, and he's going to go down to one where he says the greatest of these is, is love. So you see this whole shrinking of all the commands But they have 613 commands and now Jesus is coming along and he's going to give them uh, what, what might be in their minds a new one. But it's really not new. It's just a little bit different because Jesus, like I said, reduced it. So what Jesus is saying in these verses that you're to love one another as Jesus has loved you and I, he's not adding anything. He's changing something. He's giving us more clarification And he's making love move from a feeling to a command. Love is moving from a feeling to a command. Now, he's telling them, or he's not telling them, or he's not commanding them to feel something. He's commanding them to do something. For instance, if you don't get along with someone, if you don't get along with your family, or if you don't get along with a church person, whatever it is, some schism there, something, the thing he's telling us to do is, Go practically love that person or persons. And then he adds the terrible phrase to love others as I have loved you. And that's the one that really, you know, chaps our hide. But that's the phrase and that's the idea and that's the lifestyle that would change the world and change every relationship we have, would it not? If I just loved others the way Jesus Christ loved me. But but here's the problem. And from, from my perspective, and I think you probably take the same perspective, um, people today, um, they really do believe that love is just a feeling, right? That if I feel it, if I feel love, then I act on it, and if I feel love, then, then I love you. And I remember one of the first times I ran into this, and I was a very young Christian, and I was talking to this person, and, um, and he turned to me, and we were talking, and he said that he had separated from his wife. And I said, why? And he said these words. I've never forgot these words. He said, um, he goes, "I, I love her, but I don't love her. And then he says, you understand? And I thought, I don't understand at all. What do you mean you love her, but you don't love her? I don't understand what that even means whatsoever. And the conversation was left there. And I remember thinking about it and thinking about it. And I'm the type that thinks about it and thinks about it. And I thought, I think the only thing I can understand what he was saying was, is this, that he doesn't feel love for her anymore. And so since he didn't feel love for her anymore, then therefore he separated from her and he didn't understand that love isn't only feelings or it isn't feelings per se, it can produce feelings, but love is more a, a command. Because you think about it, if love is just, if I only act on love and feelings, th- there's no character in that. That's kind of immature, is it not? I mean, don't toddlers only love if they feel like loving, Right? Don't teenagers only love if they feel like loving? But true love is based on character. I make the decision to love, not based on what I feel. Uh, I make it to, I make it because it's a command of God, and God said to do it the way he does it. Now, here's a big question. When we hear Jesus make the statement that we are to love as he loved us, when he makes it to them, what is the first thing you think about When he says, as I have loved you. What do you think? What's your first thought on that? What's your application? The what? The what? The foot washing? Wrong answer, but I'll take that one. That's okay, Julie. No, it wasn't one that. Don't you think of the cross? That we're to love the way he loved us, and they would think of the cross. Question, had the cross happened yet? Hasn't happened yet. So you're on to something, Julie, but you ruined my whole application. (laughs) But... uh, but, but, uh, but think about how Jesus loved them. Question, how did he just love Judas? It just happened. What did he give him? Where did he seat him at the Last Supper? Do you remember that? He seats him at the Place of Honor, remember? He gives him the morsel, which means, hey, unconditional friendship right here. He knows Judas is going to betray him. And yet he still does that for Judas right there. And so you think about that's really what Jesus is talking about. How about uh, you take a guy like uh, like Matthew. Matthew, one of the 12, was a tax collector. Question, what did Jews feel about tax collectors? Tax collectors worked for the Romans. What did the Jews feel about them? They hate them. And yet Jesus says, hey, come and be part of my 12. And so you think about how Jesus is relating to these people and how he's loving these people and you understand, okay, I see how I am to love the way Jesus loved me. Now, we all know we fall pretty short of that one right there, right? It's, it's, a, it's a goal we aim for. We try our best. We pick ourselves back up, and we do it. But we're never going to get it perfect. But that's really the goal, to love as um, Jesus loved us. Now, that's one. Point two is this, and that is love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. It is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. If you look at verse 35 in chapter 13 of John, it says this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice he says by, first two words, by, look at your verse, by what? This. It's a specific thing, right? And so what is the this? Well, Old Testament sign of a believer was what? Do you remember? circumcision. New Testament sign of a believer is, according to Jesus, is love. It's not the... And notice, in, look at verse 35. He doesn't say it's the proof you're a Christian. It's the proof you're a what? What word does he use? A disciple. A disciple. It's the proof that you're a disciple. You're not a Christian. You're a disciple. So he's telling them that, you know, the identifying mark that you and I are truly disciples, followers of Christ is... That I love other people the way Jesus loved me. Now, um, let's try to apply this to to life because it really revolves around how I relate to other people, correct? So the question would be this, that I need to ask myself then when it comes to love. I would ask myself in situations, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? For instance... If you're dating somebody, you don't ask, okay, is that a sin? What got to get away? No, that's not what you ask. You ask, what does love require of me, right? If you're married, you ask yourself, what does love require of me toward my spouse? If I'm a parent, I ask myself, what does love require of me toward my kids? Neighbors, how many have a rough neighbor? Somebody you'd like to have move away or something like that. (laughs) So, you ask yourself, what does love require of me in that situation? It's not an easy way to live, but it is the way that Jesus says for us to live. Have you noticed that the Bible doesn't speak to every situation in your life? Has anybody noticed that yet? it, It couldn't possibly. There's too many situations In life that we encounter. So what's the best way to approach a situation where I just can't find an actual example that relates to that situation that I'm dealing with? I think the best thing to do is ask myself the question, what does love require of me in this situation? What should I do? Now, if I ask myself that question and I'm honest with that question... I probably will make a right decision. Wouldn't you agree on that one right there? Yes. I'll probably make a right decision when I really don't know what to do. What does love require of me? Now let's move on. Verse 36, 7, and 8. Says this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot come, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, how many know that's just not going to happen, right? <laughs> he, and how many, when you read that, you, you, you realize you're like Peter, I'm like Peter. We have a much higher estimation of ourselves under pressure, correct? Yeah, he, and he doesn't, and the reality of that situation, he doesn't know himself very well. Have you ever noticed you and I are not fully aware of what sins we're capable of committing? It's just a fact. It's true. We're living a fallen world, still fallen, but we're born again, yes. Now, verse 38. Jesus, in response to what Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you, Lord. He answers, Will you lay down your life for me? Then Jesus tells him the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me how many times? Three, Three times. Okay. <clears throat> now, Mark adds to the story that uh, the cock will crow two times, not just one time. So Peter will deny three times before the cock crows twice. And, and always remember that whenever you have... Um, th- this is where some people are going to say, well, see, there's, there's, um, there's con- contradictions in Scripture. Remember we talked about that before? Okay, how do you respond to situations like that? you got to remember that it'd be like you're at an accident and the police officer goes and interviews all the witnesses. Every witness at the accident will have their own little difference of perspective on the situation, correct? And that's the way it is there. If you go back, and I like this illustration best, if you go back and you read about the survivors of the Titanic, some were in the rear of the ship, some were on the side of the ship out in the water. So on the side of the ship, they said that the ship... Went up, broke in half. The ones in the back didn't see it break in half. They never saw it. So they give a different rendition of it because they're at different angles that night out in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic. And that's the way you've got to look at these things, that there's different perspectives. That's why one guy says there was one angel at the tomb. One says there were two angels at the tomb of the resurrection. So you have to understand there's different perspectives and some will only, say, will only say one because that's probably what they thought was most important. They didn't need to say two. And so it's not contrast whatsoever when it says one says, you know, there's going to be the cock will grow once and the one says twice. Now, what does it mean that the cock will crow twice before you deny me three times? There's two ways to look at this. And um, the first way is the most obvious of all ways. And that is, and I know we talked about this when we were walking in Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember that day, Jerry. But um, um, the first way is that that's an actual rooster that's gonna he's gonna you know cock a doodle doo or whatever that night. And so, and here's the deal with that: why when Jesus tells Peter and the gang that the cock will crow? Because why why it would be strange to them? Uh, there was it's Passover time. And there's a local ordinance that says at Passover time, you cannot have roosters, chickens in the city of Jerusalem. And the reason for that is pretty practically obvious, and that is, what do animals do? They drop stuff, okay? And it's Passover. And if you step in that or touch that, you will be made what? Unclean. And if you're unclean, Passover, which is one of the big ones Then you cannot. Then you're ritually unclean. You cannot celebrate Passover, so they would get all the roosters, all the chickens out of the city. And so when Jesus says, you know, the cock crow twice, in their minds they think that's just never going to happen. There are none in the city. It's Passover time, which tells us that Jesus knew there'd be at least one in the city. Amen, because he knows all things. Now that's one possibility, but there's a second possibility, and. As we uh, were on our last Israel trip, and that's that's when the, the tour guide would just get me a little bit upset inside, stuff like that. Because the way he'd say it, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, but when you go on an Israel tour, like I do the Christian side of it, but you have an Israeli guide, and he gives you all the land and the history and the government, and he said, but he would say something like this, and he said it a few times, and by the second time, by the time we left Galilee and got Jerusalem, this was the second time, was the first time he did this, On the geometry, on the fish, on the sea, and Galilee. But this time, he says, he said it again. He goes, "I'm going to tell you some, some, you Christians, something you just don't know," and that really bugs me when they say (laughs) stuff like that. Okay. And then he starts telling the other side, which was like, "Really? You don't think we know this?" And that's this. That's the other side of the cock crowing, and that is that on the Temple Mount. There was a fort, a Roman fort, called the Fortress of Antonia. Now, <clears throat> it's probably where they took Jesus, probably where they scourged him, probably things like that. It sits on the northwest. it sat on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, where the temple proper was. There's a temple guard, and at three o'clock in the morning, that temple guard, he's going to sound the trumpet. Because it's the changing of the guard. Now, the word, the trumpet call that they would use in Latin, the word is Gallicinium. So he'd go up, he'd be the, the Gallicinium. Okay. Gallicinium literally means cock crows. So it literally means. And so the cock's gonna crow twice. It's Passover. Are there more people in Jerusalem at Passover than normal? Oh, it swelled up. And so, usually they blow it one time. But because there's so many people at that time in Jerusalem, he would blow the trumpet one way, he would turn around, and he'd blow it the other way. So he'd blow it twice. And so that's the other meaning, the possibility of the cock crows, that he's going to blow it once, blow it twice. So you take your pick, whichever one you want to choose. Um, you're fine with me either way. But I just wanted to give you both of the possible meanings of what was going to happen that night when Jesus says the cock's going to crow twice. Now, chapter 14, here we go. Let me ask the question again. How many of you, let's take it extreme, you lose sleep due to worry. You ever lose sleep due to worry? Mm -hmm, Yeah? Okay. How many of you just stress and worry? You're good at it. Anybody? You good stressors and worriers and stuff like that? Just, oh, you can raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. It's okay. How many of you would use the nice words like, oh, you're not worried. You're just concerned? <laughs> I'm not stressed. I'm just burdened for some situation, stuff like that. When in reality, you're just, you know, worried out of your mind, okay? You know, so tonight, I, I want to talk about that because Jesus, as we enter chapter 14, I want you to think about what he's, what's been happening with the disciples things that he's told them. Think about it like this. Put yourself in their place because he just told them, first off, I'm leaving you guys. Wouldn't that be shocking right there? That'd be kind of a big deal if you're one of the disciples, right? He also told them, secondly, you can't come with me. That'd be kind of even worse, right? I'm leaving, but you can't come with me. Okay, and he's also told them, and by the way, one of you are going to betray me. So, I'm leaving, you can't come with me, and one of you guys is a big loser, okay? You're going to betray me. And so, when you mix that all together, do you think they'd have a little bit of stress and a little bit of worry? I think they'd have a lot of stress and a lot of worry. And so, how do we deal with that? I think Jesus gives us some great practical uh, examples or truths in chapter 14, and we're going to use chapter 14, the first half of it, anyway, to deal with stress and worry. And the first thing, it would be point three now in your notes, is this, personal faith in a personal God brings personal relief. Personal faith in a personal God brings personal relief. Let me say it again. Personal faith in a personal God brings personal relief. Now look at verse one. After I'm leaving, you can't come, one of you will betray me. They're stressed. And Jesus says to them this, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. Now, doesn't that phrase now make a lot more sense when you understand I'm leaving, you can't come, one of you will betray me? It makes way more sense when you understand the background of what's going on there. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, you just keep believing in me no matter what happens. Just keep believing. Okay, so you guys, you guys know that um, I like watching... Um, I'm just a junkie for ID Channel Murder Mysteries. Any, anybody with me? I, I'm just a junkie. Uh, it's just like, in fact, sometimes I wish I was a profiler or something like that. It was just, I just find it so fascinating. I just, you know, I, I do. So I'm watching this one a couple, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I, I don't know. And this one got me because it was this lady and she was probably by the time the part I'm going to tell you, she was probably in her mid to late 60s. And 10 years earlier, her daughter had been murdered. Because it's a murder mystery. They, they couldn't find the killer. They couldn't find the killer. In those 10 years going by, they finally find the killer 10 years later. But in the 10 years, she had one other child, a son, and that son died. In that 10 years, her husband dies. And I'm watching this. And she has no one. She's just by herself now after all this. And the reporter, he asked her the question. And he said this, how do you cope with all this loss? What do you do? How do you handle this? And she said, and that's why I don't forget it because it's kind of, yeah, she said, my faith." My faith. See, what she said was personal faith and a personal God brings personal relief. Can you imagine if you and I did not believe in God, and didn't have a personal faith when crisis hits our life? Can you imagine what it'd be like to feel so alone, so hopeless? Can you imagine? It would, I, it would just be excruciating torture. But she answered the right answer. She said, My faith. Personal faith in a personal God brings personal relief. And that's one of the greatest helps that we have whenever we're stressed, whenever we're in a season of worry. You keep your personal faith in a personal God and it brings personal relief. Does it not? It's helped me so many times when I've gone through pressure cooker things in ministry that have lasted years. 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 And I can't come up here on the pulpit and tell you how stressed I am because nobody wants a stressed-out, doubting pastor, right? Right? Okay, good. So I just got to come and say, everything's great. (laughs) But personal faith in a personal God brings personal relief. Now, the next thing that helps us to overcome stress and worries, number four, our future is secure. Our future is absolutely secure. Now watch verses 2 and verse 3. Watch what Jesus says because he knows there's stress. I'm leaving, you can't come, and one of you's going to betray me. They're stressed, they're worried. So we look at verse 2 and 3. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for who? For you. That's you and me, all of us followers of Christ. Verse 3, if, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Oh, okay. So, what he's telling me is, I'm assured. I'm assured that if Jesus goes away, his going, think about it like this his going away has nothing to do with any personal failures of mine, correct? See, they could sit there and say, one of them's going to betray us. It's a personal failure. That's why he's leaving. Has nothing to do with that, has nothing to do with it. You and I are going to fail at times. His feeling like he's not there has nothing to do with that whatsoever. He says he's going to create dwelling places. That's the literal idea of an abode, a place where you abide, where you're going to be with him. So he's illustrating that you and I have future relationship with the Father. No matter what, he's going to to be there for us. No matter what, we will abide with the Father forever and ever. And that should give you hope on planet Earth because life is but a vapor. It's a short distance, and then we're with Him for eternity. Amen to that one? Now, look at verse 4 through 7. Watch what Jesus continues on saying. He says, and you know the way where I am going. Now, this is a confusing statement because they really have no clue where He's going, right? Now, watch what they do. Thomas, who people call doubting Thomas, but... You know, you you, you can't, as we get later in John, I'll say this later on again, but I wouldn't call him Doubting Thomas because he wasn't at the meeting and now he doubts because he didn't see Jesus because he wasn't hiding like the rest of the disciples. He was walking around the city. If you really think about it, that's why he wasn't there. So to be a doubter, he's only doubting because he wasn't in the meeting when everybody else was in the meeting when Jesus showed up. But the meeting was, hey, let's hide because they're going to kill us. That's what the meeting was wasn't some great church service. Now, So Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So he's saying, I, where are you going? What, what's the way? You said, I, know, I don't know the way. And Jesus now will make the great statement that he makes. And he says this. Jesus said to him, and he says it to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, what I like? you know what I like most about the sequence? Think about the sequence. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I always think of it like this in my mind. I'm sure I read it somewhere decades ago. That the way that I jump, on the, on, I'm on the bandwagon with Jesus. I'm on the way with Him now, right? And if I'm walking with Jesus as a follower of Christ, then now... I begin to jump into the truths of God's Word, right? So I'm walking on the way, and I'm jumping into God's truth. And if I'm on the way and jumping into God's truth, then what will I experience? Life. Abundant life. I think it's a very simple, progressive process. I'm going to jump on the way. I got saved. I'm going to jump into the Word. I'm going to get the truth, transform thinking, and I'm going to now experience life because I'm going to think like, I'm going to act like, I'm going to live like Jesus and according to this Word. So now I experience life. It's a very, very simple process. Now, when Jesus says this, and this is something that, you know, you got to rehearse in your mind to be able to defend your faith and defend your Christianity. And this says, when he says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through him. Okay, no one, no one can make it to heaven but through Jesus, right? That's pretty much settled. All other religions in the world... How do they say they make it to heaven or their paradise or whatever that is for them? What do they say they have to do? It's always works, and it always works. So always rehearse this, and I've, I've shared this with you many times. I, I will share it again and again till we, till you get it. And that's this: when a cult member comes to your door, and you know what I mean by that, right? Okay. When they come to your door and they knock, don't say so go. Oh, sh- sh- don't have to panic okay don't panic you get remember the Holy Spirit lives in you remember that one okay and he's going to give you the words to say right always remember that if it's a Jehovah's Witness one of them's really strong in how to debate it the other one is a trainee always talk to the trainee always share your testimony with the trainee because they're the ones who are just learning this stuff but anyway when they come to the door They're always, you're going to dialogue and they're going to tell you. They are going to tell you that they are saved. They believe that you are saved by faith and the grace of God. That's what they're going to tell you. Every time, they're going to tell you. Especially Mormons are going to tell you that. Now, I know the Book of Mormon says in their Book of Mormon, you are saved by the grace of God. It's a specific verse. You are saved by the grace of God after all you can do. Isn't that a contradiction right there? <laughs> yeah. Now, let's think about that. So I know they believe that you have to do good works in order to be saved, right? Yeah. And all religions are like that. So what I do, and I hope you do, if you ever dialogue with them, is start asking them, so how am I saved? This, and that, Oh, by faith, by grace. And then say, so I don't have to do any works at all. You gotta bait them, okay? You bait them. And they go, well, yeah, you gotta do work. So, I have to do works to be... I have to do works? Yeah. You got to get them there because they have got to admit it. And once they admit it, then what do you ask them? You've heard me say, how many? How many? 150? 200. 533. And then tell them this because I want to know. Because once I hit the quota, then I can just go sin all I want, right? Because I've met the quota, Right. See, I make it dumb comical. I try to. And, and the, oh, no, 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 you, you, you can't do that. I go, well, tell me how many. See, the answer is what? There's no answer. There's no answer to how many. In, your, in a person's mind, if they're saved by good works, they always have to keep doing good works to stay saved. Correct? Correct, correct? yeah. Yeah, but you could tell them that all day. You have to take them logically down the road. Yeah, they're not going to accept that. Um, but you have to logically take them down the road to show them how absurd their thinking is. It works against them because they cannot stop doing good works. There, there, There's no answer to the question. The question is how good is good enough? And so that's when you can take them and say, well, take them and say, this my the Bible says, I'm just saved by the grace of God. I choose to do good works because I'm saved by grace and faith in Jesus, not because I'm saved by what I do. Because I can't, there is, there is not a, there's not an amount of good works I can do to even cancel one sin in my life. And that just takes the blood of Jesus to do that. Amen to that one? Amen. So you always remember that that's how you have to approach it. If you want to reach these people for the true Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> now where am I at here? I just jumped away off the bandwagon on this right here. Okay, number five. Number five. Uh, God is at work in our lives. So you want to overcome stress and worry. Always remember that God is at work in our lives. Now watch what Jesus continues on, what he says. In verse 8, Philip now is gonna butt in and he's got some some dialogue here. He says, Philip said said to him, Lord. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, By the way, that's a pretty big question, huh? It's a big, hey, just show me the Father, it's enough. Really, you think you can see the Father and live? The Old Testament says no one has seen God and live. You can't. He says, show us the Father. Really, so nonchalant. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Huh. So, the whole point here is God is at work in our lives even when it feels like he's not. Now, Philip asked Jesus, show me the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Okay. I always like to say it like this one of my kids named Nathan. Most of you know him. I say, if you've seen the mother, you've seen Nathan. <laughs> or if you've seen Nathan, you've seen the mother. Because I think that Nathan and my wife Olivia, I think they look exactly alike. I mean, some of you say, oh, Nathan looks so much like you. I go, where? <laughs> he doesn't look like me at all. But they, they, they look so much alike. and And so... That's not the idea of physical looks, but he's saying, if you've seen me, you, you've seen the Father. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he adds another qualifier and he says this, then if that's not enough, believe in the works that I do, or I should say that the Father does through me. So in other words, when he says, show us the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father because it's the Godhead, three persons in one. And then Just look at all the works that I do that the Father's doing through me. So the whole point in this is that God is always at work in our lives. Is he not? Is he not? But does it feel that way all the time? Sure doesn't, huh? Sometimes it feels like God's doing nothing in my life. Sometimes I feel like God's not even around in my life. Sometimes I feel like, God, you're on the other side of the universe in my life right now. What are you doing? Are you doing anything in my life? But the truth is, God is always working. God never stops working, which is an interesting concept because didn't he rest on the seventh day? But in reality, though he rested, he was still running the whole universe because it needs him to run. Right? You can't run without him. But God is always working. Now, let's look at chapter uh, verses 12, 13, and 14 because Jesus makes an interesting statement here that I think we have to clarify. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these, he will do because I go to the Father. Huh. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Don't you just love those verses? Genie, Jesus, the genie in the bottle? Right? Wrong? Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that I can just ask, name whatever I want. These are called name and claim it, gab it and grab it. They had all kinds of funny terms for it. It doesn't mean I can just say whatever I want and Jesus is going to do it for me. That's not what it means. To think that's what it means is just to take a piece out and eliminate everything around the, the statement of Jesus. So you've got to take the whole idea and see what that means right there. So let's look back at verse 12. Let's see what he's talking about here. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. So what is this now talking about? It's talking about the works of God. What are the works of God? That's Jesus' ministry. Is it not? So keep the idea now, this is contextually the idea of Jesus' ministry, the works of God. Now, you take that, you move to verse 13, and he says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So now, he's talking about asking his name, prayer. So now you take Jesus' ministry as the context, and now I'm asking in prayer, according to the ministry of Jesus. Does that make sense? you got to put it all together that way, otherwise it will not make sense. Sense uh, in God's eyes anyway. And then you move it to verse 14. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So now, whose name is inserted in there in the asking? In the name of Jesus. So it's in Jesus' ministry. Okay, I pray according to Jesus' ministry and I ask according to His name, which means to ask according to Jesus' interest, right? Okay, let me, let me tell you the way I, I try to explain it in case I made no sense whatsoever to you. I say it like this, when I got saved and you got saved, did we not receive the DNA of Jesus Christ? Yeah, we did, yeah. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, right? Does it begin to change our heart? Yes, it does. It changes my heart. Now, as my heart is now changed, it has a, a disposition towards God, and then I start to read God's Word. And I study God's word, and I read it, and months and years go by. What is happening to my thinking? Changing, but give me more definition to changing. It's lining up with who's thinking, with God's thinking, with Jesus' thinking. So now my heart has been, has changed disposition towards towards life because according to God, when I got saved, but now my mind is lining up with Jesus' thinking, is it not? And time goes by. As time keeps going by, and my heart, my disposition now towards God, and my thinking is changing to to think like Jesus, do my prayers change? They should. Because now I'm thinking like who? Like Jesus. And now I'm bent towards God. And so now as I'm thinking like Jesus would think and I'm bent towards God's will and I'm understanding my life, I will tend not to pray for just whatever I want. I'll want to pray the will of God, correct? And I'll be able to because my mind is transformed as I'm studying the word of God, as I'm thinking like Jesus Christ. So listen, if my heart is changed and my mind is changed towards God, and I'm praying the prayers now that God would pray, or the heart of God, would it be more logical now that Jesus could answer those prayers? Yes. You better believe it. Because I'm not praying my prayers. I'm praying the heart and the prayers of? Of God. Does that make sense? And that's the way it works. So when you see people just praying these real selfish prayers, right? In, they're not praying according to the will of God. The longer you're a Christian, and the more you study, and the more you transform, the more likely you are to pray the will of God because your thinking's gone that direction. That's what has happened now. Now, number six, last one in your notes. We'll we'll close it with this one. We are never alone. When you're stressed, when you're worried, you are never, ever alone. Ever. Now, verses 15, 16, and 17. It says this. If you love me, You will keep my commandments. That's a big term, right? I will ask the Father, and He will um, give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. Now, by applic- by, let me take an application. He says the Spirit... In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon just a few people for a specific purpose, for a short time, and that was it. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God is always with us. Always. We're born again. He lives in us. Now, so we're never, ever alone. One of my favorite, favorite illustrations of that, that we're never alone, is this. Okay. And for those of you right now that you feel like God is just, I don't know where he's at in my life right now. I don't know if he's active in my life right now. I don't know if he's doing anything in my life right now. Do you remember? It's, it's Genesis 28. When Jacob messes up and he tricks his father and he tricks his brother. Remember that? What does his brother want to do to him? That's a kill. Him. And so he's like meet, meet, and he's gone. And he's on the run. He's on the land. He's gonna end up at his uncle Laban's house. But that first night that he runs, he's out there in the desert. He falls asleep in the desert. Do you remember what he used for a pillow? A rock. He uses a rock for a pillow. Can you imagine? He's sitting out there, he's away from his family. He's messed messed it up badly. But do you remember what happens out there? God appears to him. Had that dream. Remember the dream? Ascending and descending. Remember the angels? And then what is Jacob? He wakes up finally. And he looks around. It's a desert. He's the only one out there. Do you remember what he says in verse 16? Surely the Lord was here and I did not know it. And I did not know it. Don't we feel that way at times? Don't we come to that realization after that, surely God is here. But I didn't know it. I couldn't see it but he was here and he is here in my life and that's what we always got to remember now let me give you one last thought that I'll use, I'm going to use it in a teaching on Sunday in about three or four weeks and, but I just like the idea of it because we're talking we're finishing up on worry you're never alone you're never alone God's with you you don't have to worry question who are the only people on this planet that do not worry Louder? Children. Children Children do not worry. They do not worry. I watch my grandkids. You know, grandkids are your second chance, right? (laughs) To correct everything you did wrong the first time. Um, I watch those kids. They're not stressed. There's no stress in them whatsoever. I mean, last night watching Lincoln... I mean, it was the greatest night of her life. All the candy she had, it was incredible. (laughs) But they don't stress. They don't worry. Why don't they worry? They never worry about home or a bed or food. They don't worry because you supply it. You give it to them, and they never stress. That's a child relationship to a parent. You and I are children of God. If we're to have childlike faith and we're to trust that our God, our father in heaven, our parent is going to take care of us. We need to be like little kids. They never worry. They never worry. And we can follow that same path. We, I have a God. I have a father in heaven. I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry. Amen. Let's pray. No, thank you, Jesus, that we do have you. And we do not have to stress out over uh, seasons of life that aren't going the right way. That we can trust you no matter what. That our personal faith in a personal God brings personal relief. That you're, that you're always with us. That no matter what happens in our life here, we have an abode in heaven that we're going to be with you one day. We're never alone. Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. That you're always working on our behalf. Always. Thank you for that, God. But Lord, help us to walk in the first half half of this teaching, and that is that we're to love other people. What does love require me to do in this situation? Because that's the best question I can ask myself when I just don't know what to do. What does love require of me? Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.